0: Hey, welcome to the Pittsburgh City Paper Podcast. I'm Alex Gordon. Today we have two interviews. In the second half of the show, producer Ashley Murray will talk to City Paper's arts editor and green light columnist Bill O'Driscoll. She's going to be talking to him about a new novel that follows various characters in western Pennsylvania, fracking. Uh, it should be a pretty good one. To start, though, we're going to have Waino in the studio. Waino is a cartoonist, a locally based cartoonist, and his syndicated... Uh, comic, wayne vision made its debut in the Pittsburgh City paper today. It's going to be a weekly feature uh, moving on into the future, so definitely keep an eye out for that. To learn about it, listen to this interview that's happening right now. I guess to start, do you want to just describe your style and your perspective for people who maybe haven't seen it yet? Sure. So um,
1: I don't have any continuing characters or anything like that, so each each panel is a standalone uh, it 's like a forty five you know if you 're thinking of music, yeah um, I think uh, my style is kind of low key and absurdist maybe um, i don 't use a lot of exclamation points or like people yelling or jumping around yeah. or you know making funny faces um, it 's usually um, sort of like a moment where there 's something odd. Like a normal person in an odd situation, or just some some anomaly that then is resolved by the reader. Um, uh, you know, like I said, it's kind of I, I consider it to be kind of a lo- low key humor. I mean, I worked with um, uh, Dan Peraro on his comic Bizarro for a yeah. long time, and we have very similar sensibilities. So um, I kind of don't like unless
0: it's making a point. Like goofy looking characters, yeah. You know. And I was you know I was going through uh, you can find wayno 's comics at gocomics.com slash waynovision. I was going through those earlier today, and what I like about it is it obviously we 're a newspaper so there 's a journalistic aspect to this, but it's not it 's sort of relevant without being timely. Is that a fair statement?
1: I think so. yeah, I try not to be um, too p- uh, political or you know sp- although sometimes you know the personal is political. And sometimes you just can't resist, yeah. like, you know. Everybody has to do a Trump gag sooner yeah, or yeah. later.
0: <laughs> um, so, how did this come together? How did you um, come? When, how did you come to join CP in this way?
1: Uh, well, um, you know, I'd worked with Lisa Cunningham, the art director, in the past quite a bit, and um, she just kind of was championing me in house. I think um, when they were deciding on some new features, um, she she told me that she had been. <sighs> Kind of hoping to to shepherd this for some time, so um, you know it's all thanks to Lisa, really. Oh, cool!
0: So to go back before uh, what you were saying about these single panel things, at any point in, in your career, have you have you done multiple panel uh, series?
1: I did um, uh, a long time ago. I did some um, comic books, like independent comics,
0: right. where I
1: had recurring characters, and I once did a um, syndication package you know samples with um con- with the same characters and uh you know that kind of gives you an advantage in some way um but i really like these standalone things um again i you know music is really a big part of my consciousness <laughs> and so i kind of think of um um, I spoke, you know, have spoken with other cartoonists, and I kind of think of the single panels as like a punk rock single. You know, it's in and out; it's yeah. like a two-minute song. So, and I get to, you know, I don't have, I'm not like locked into um, anything that I could get sick of. Right. You know?
0: Do you listen to music when you draw?
1: I do. I do. Um, when I'm writing, I'm usually in a quiet room, or I'm just listening to, like maybe ambient music or quiet music but when i'm drawing i listen to all sorts of music yeah. any favorites oh my gosh um i like a lot of jazz i like um punk rock uh anything i'm always curious about things i'm really big on um like 60s italian soundtracks oh cool so i kind of have this weird collection of uh Ennio Morricone and all
0: of, of course, his compatriots. Yeah. I was going to say it's the only one I know. So that's as you yeah, that's <laughs> the big one. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you remember the first comic you ever drew?
1: I do. In fact, I was. I think I was. I think I was in second or third grade, and we made a newspaper. Just there was just one copy. It was a completely handmade <laughs> newspaper. Limited edition. Right. Yeah. Very limited. Yeah. And um, I did. Um, some some gag that i stole from a cartoon i'd seen on tv um i think there was a there was a guy fishing and like the fish put a note on the hook or something <laughs> like that it's long gone i think
0: <laughs> <laughs> fortunately my plagiarism days yeah so do you want to just tell us a little bit about your career how you came to do this professionally
1: sure uh i w- i always wanted to draw and i always drew since i was a little kid and i um Kind of got into a pre internet um, network um, of uh, kind of grew out of a mail art movement uh, of mini comics. So there was a uh, people all over the world doing these small Xerox eight page comics and trading them through the mail. So it was a really free and unstructured kind of training ground. And from that, I started getting published in. Uh, there were a lot of black and white anthology comics in the n- early '90s. fanographics, Kitchen Sink, other publishers started doing those. Um, it's kind of a weird route. I, after the I was published in these uh, alt sort of post underground comics, um, I started getting calls from art directors for illustration work, mm-hmm. which I found that I liked quite a bit. And then just one thing led to another. Um, but I've always been interested in the form as cartooning. So mm. even my illustration work is is cartoon work. It's not um, purely representational. Mm. Um, and uh, the people at Universal, Go Comics, about a year and a half ago or maybe a little longer, asked me if I would be interested in joining their site. And they, the title is kind of their fault. They suggested that since... My name is sort of a brand that I include that in the title somehow. So that's what we came up with, Wayne. So Vision. that's not a
0: that's not a long time. You haven't had that for a very long time.
1: The title, yeah, no, but I've had the name for a long
0: yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, so we were talking a little bit before about uh, the role the internet plays. Obviously, you can see your comics at gocomics dot com slash waynovision. Right. Um, you know, we're a newspaper. We have a physical paper, but obviously, we also have a website. Is do you think that the internet is uh, i 'm sure it's good and bad for comics culture uh do you think I, it's more one or the other
1: i think it's better it's more good than bad okay i mean you certainly can reach it's the the point of entry um is available to everyone you know right. and so if you put your comics online anyone all over the world can see them um, in you know on the other hand that has probably contributed to the um if not the Demise the culling of of print uh, mm-hmm. weeklies, uh, or okay. but but I don't think print's ever going to go away. No. Um, and I like to be in both. I think that I'm reaching a different audience, um, casual readers. Everybody, you know, people pick up the city paper or weeklies from from the boxes, and they're not specifically looking for the comic. Yeah. So I'm hoping to
0: just infiltrate. Is Pittsburgh a good place to be a comic to be a cartoonist it
1: is it is uh it's a good place to be any type of an <laughs> artist uh, we have you, you know we have a pretty reasonable cost of living we have a great arts community here yeah. um, and within that uh, uh, a pretty active and uh, uh vital cartoonist community. We have a group that um, gets together for lunch once a month because normally we just work by ourselves right so we can talk to each other and see what we're doing and we have a mailing list of almost a hundred people in the area that are specifically in the cartooning world
0: wow. do you ever write or draw about pittsburgh i didn't see any but
1: not so much in my comic but i have in the past um you know here and there uh i've uh I did a little one-page comic once for a, uh, a guide to the north side. It was a little capsule biography, I guess, of the Manchester Craftsman's Guild. Okay. So it's certainly part of you know, who I am. Um, but I, I I look at my comics as uh, specifically O Vision
0: as not confined to a region. Right. You know. So week after week, uh, are you going to be writing these new every week are you pulling from like a, a collection that you already have finished what's it, it going to be a mix
1: um, I'm working every week on new comics mm-hmm. um, right now I'm about two or three months ahead Awesome. so <laughs> I'm trying to maintain that Yeah. Um, so I'm doing uh, online there's two per week so I'm each week I'm picking the best one for the city paper yeah. uh, or my favorite of the two um, for the print version. So, and, the, you know, the difference, uh, pr- print is, um, getting back to that question, print is kind of, is very ephemeral. And so if people are interested, then they can go see everything online and just, you know, scroll back through the whole history. Right. So I think they complement
0: each other. Yeah. So, you mean, three months ahead, that's that's pretty good. Is that, uh, you just got, st- how long does it take to do one comic? <laughs> um...
1: <laughs> I mean the physical work of the physical labor of the drawing and scanning and coloring can be um, I don't know maybe a couple of hours each, but the writing is is kind of constant. Um, it's and I, I've done I've done a lot of writing about writing comics because I want to try to demystify this idea that. Um, it, you just kind of sit down and it's all done. And, you, mm. you know, I, I spend, and everybody I know who's a cartoonist spends a lot of time writing, like any other type of writing, editing, changing. Um, I keep a sketchbook with me pretty much all the time.
0: Yeah, do you uh, have it? Yeah, is it I do, like? yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: so, yeah, here's. Uh, oh, wow. You know, I keep. So, here's some things I'll, I'll show you um, some ideas that I, when I get back to my studio today, I'll be. I'll be drawing but i'll start you know i mean i may draw things 10 or 12 times before i actually start drawing it for for a publication and um, i'm kind of obsessive about editing so a lot of times even after the work is uploaded i'll go back and i could i could delete a couple of words
0: (laughs) well yeah i mean i guess with on the word part you know obviously it's a, a function of you know economic you have to be as efficient as possible, so I guess is that what you're talking about? Just taking out words, making it shorter.
1: Um, partially, yeah. I mean, I think that brevity is usually better, unless that's the point. Yeah. You know, unless the 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 gag is about being very wordy. Yeah. But um, so I'm very happy when I come up with a, a a purely visual gag that has no
0: words at all. Yeah. All right, so I mentioned to you before. I I want to talk about some of your comics, but it doesn't translate very well to radio. We can do it. Let's see how it works. All right. Do you want to describe the one that is your debut in City Paper? Sure. There today.
1: So the uh, the caption up at the top it says London 1967, and it's the members of this band that I think still exists called Status Quo, and uh, they're all kind of standing around in their um, frilly mod um, gear and uh the organist is asking the other members that are looking at the drum head that says status quo and he says do you think the name really captures a rebellious rock and roll spirit so it's just kind of a little joke on their name yeah um but i you know again, I did a lot of photo research for this
0: <laughs> for <laughs> this comic,
1: so those those actually kind of look like the oh, real, really? the real guys and uh, uh, the instruments are are cartoon historically accurate okay. um, and the, the you know that 's what their drum head looked like but that 's kind of a joke that like i'm I think probably a few years ago I just kind of made a tweet and said, you know the
0: least rebellious."
1: rock and roll band name was status quo so do uh, you, yeah. do you
0: tweet a lot I do yeah, because it seems like a, a similar a healthy thing for somebody in in cartoons to do to right have quick funny thoughts right and i
1: and I also use it to kind of um trick myself into working too, so almost every week i'll so I'll be working on two or three or four or five cartoons, and I'll put a tweet up that says on the drawing board today, and I will just mm. dis- describe without giving away anything kind of like what I'm drawing you know so it'll say like I don't know uh, gangsters a lizard um, you know a a rock band and uh, that kind of makes me finish them because I've kind of I've I've publicized that they exist so it kind of makes me keep working rather than giving up on on a gag so um, when you when you when you're self uh, employed you have to employ You have to trick yourself all the time. (laughs) Give yourself deadlines so you can finish things. Exactly.
0: All right. Thank you so much for being here, Wayno.
1: Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. I'm happy to be in print in uh, paper boxes and coffee shops all over Pittsburgh now.
0: Awesome. Thank you. All right. And now producer Ashley Murray talks to Bill O'Driscoll about the new novel, Heat and Light.
2: Thanks for coming in, Bill. Sure thing. For our listeners who don't know, you are the arts editor of City Paper, and you write our column called Green Light, which focuses on environmental news and topics. This week, you have a Q&A with author Jennifer Haig about her new novel, Heat and Light. And this crosses both of your arts and environmental specialty areas. So tell us about the novel and its title.
3: Yeah, Jennifer Haig. So uh, to, to know a little bit about her first is helpful. She's from near, she grew up near Pittsburgh um, uh, in uh, Cambria County, which is coal mining country. It's about, it's near Altoona. It's about an hour and a half away from Pittsburgh. But she grew up there in the 80s when, when coal was kind of disappearing. And, and some of her fiction, she's a really well-regarded fiction writer, short stories, novels mostly, Um a lot of a couple of her previous books have taken place in the fictionalized town of Bakerton, which um, was a coal mining town that's fallen on hard times after the coal mines disappeared. Um, but she noticed that you know in recent years that frac- as fracking started to move into the area, hydrofracturing for natural gas, that it began to change the dynamic of her old hometown. She doesn't live there anymore; she lives up in Boston, but she still keeps in touch with what goes on. And she found this fertile ground for. Um, for fiction, uh, heat and light obviously is, you know, has kind of a double entendre. We use natural gas for heating our homes and for the production of electricity. But also, you know, the, 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 the coming of fracking to these areas um, creates a lot of friction, shall we say. that That might be some of the reference to heat there. Um, and also Opportunities for Insight, perhaps that's what the light's referring to. I didn't really ask her about the title, but that's my guess.
2: And possibly Light Pollution. I've heard that. Complaints from people. Light
3: Pollution, yeah, that yeah. does that does come up in the book, too, a little bit, yeah.
2: So she told you uh, when you interviewed her that she doesn't take a position on fracking. Did she tell you that that was um, a challenge for her, being that she's from Western Pennsylvania?
3: Yeah, well I should say, I mean, first of all, her 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 view on this is very much informed by where she grew up. You know, she versus where she lives now. At one point in the interview, uh, she says, you know, when I talk to people in Boston about fracking, they're like, Yeah, it's a terrible thing. I don't know why anybody would do that. When she talks to people back home, it's more like, eh, I might make some money out of this. Doesn't seem like it does too much damage because these are people that grew up with the coal industry and the kind of damage that did to them seems Way, way worse, or or at least fracking seems much, you know, not really any worse than coal mining was. And they associate extractive industries with prosperity, essentially. Um, so in, in terms of her as an artist, I'd say she would separate... I really don't know what she thinks personally about fracking, whether she thinks it's a good idea or a bad idea. I don't know that you could tell from this book. I don't know that you would read the book and say, yay, fracking, but I also don't think you would read the book and say it has no benefits whatsoever. you know, um, Because of the way she approaches it as a fiction writer, she talks about fiction writing as basically an exercise in empathy with each of the characters that she creates. Um, she has to enter into their minds. So whether it's a gas industry executive who's guiding the fracking process and really profiting from it and what he thinks about it, or whether it's somebody who's like uh, an organic farmer who thinks like this is a really dangerous thing, or a mom who thinks, like, this has a lot of health risks for people. Um, you know, all those characters get their due in this book, and there's there's a lot of characters in this book. I'd say there's at least a dozen major characters in it, each of whom she inhabits successively and, you know, returns to the later on.
2: Yeah, I read in this one of the summaries of her book, she talks about uh, a passionate environmental activist. That's in quotes, quotes her words in the summary, or somebody's words in the summary, uh, disrupting the lives of the characters who are the dairy farmers, Mac and Rima, I believe was their names. So the novel does follow how maybe drilling companies or activists or even the natural resources under the ground maybe turn these characters' lives upside down?
3: Yeah, it changes the relationships between the characters, obviously, and that's something that we don't really think about when we're covering fracking as a news story or an environmental story or a business story, you know, the sudden introduction into this town, not even just of the possibility of wealth, but of the, well, the possibility of it. You know, it's it's the, the, the chance to make some money. One of the characters in this book, uh, one of the major characters is a prison guard from a coal mining family who sees leasing his land to gas drillers as a way to make the money to start his own dairy farm, you know, to buy the equipment and the livestock that he needs to do that. Um, his wife is somebody who goes along with it at first, but once the drilling starts, um, and the disruptions that that causes in terms of, like you're saying, noise pollution, light pollution, truck traffic, she starts to think it's contaminating their water. Um, the book leads you to believe that it, that it did, and we know certainly that that's happened in a lot of places where drilling has caused methane or other contaminants to enter the water supply. Um, you know, that changes the relationship between characters, um, the, uh, the the dairy farmer characters is actually Mac and Rima. They're a same-sex couple. Uh, and an environmental activist comes to town and sort of makes, uh, befriends a number of people in town um, to sort of get his point of view heard. And so there's that aspect of the, the whole, uh, uh, you know. And it's sort of like the interpersonal angle on these things we see as big news stories.
2: And during your interview with her, she did mention that... She looks back on other environmental, I'm sorry, other energy booms in Pennsylvania and how they've affected various people and, and the environment. And one of the examples she brings up is the Three Mile Island accident. How does she bring that up in the narrative? Does she have characters remembering something or how is it brought up?
3: It's brought up in a really curious way that that really surprised me as I was reading the book. And I should say, this is really a really good novel. I mean, she's an excellent writer. I was not familiar with her writing before this. So whether you're pro-fracking, anti-fracking or don't care, if you're pro-fiction, it's, it's a great book. It's really good um, and, and a lot of great writing in very surprising turns, including this, what appears to be sort of a digression maybe um, about Three Mile Island, one of the characters who's really kind of a minor character in the present day narrative, Grew up in Harrisburg or near there when Three Mile Island was happening back in 1979, and she, when I asked her about it, and I mean, it, it you know, it doesn't disrupt the narrative too much, but I asked her about it. I said, you know, this might strike some people as kind of a digression, and she said, um, I really felt that it needed to go in there to talk about Pennsylvania's history as a place that produces energy, you know, from the coal mines that started in the 19th century up through you know she doesn't really to to the oil you know what the america's oil industry started in you know north of pittsburgh in titusville um in 1859 um but three mile island being you know nuclear energy being part of that story of course nuclear energy is used elsewhere and produced elsewhere but this three mile island was the biggest nuclear plant disaster in american history and it happened you know a hundred miles maybe from where her story is set and and just just to use it as a way to reflect how people think about the production of energy and the risks associated with it, how it affects how people think about their health and in the production of energy. I think it's a lot there's a lot of interesting reflections on that. And it's, you know, just in terms of writing, it's it's some of the most um engaging writing in the book happens in that section too.
2: So as someone who covers arts day in and day out and who also covers environmental news and, and happenings. Um, did you find yourself having more of a, a critical eye on this piece of fiction?
3: I think so. You know, I, I think anybody who who pays attention to the to the fracking, uh, uh, the the boom of fracking in this area or around the country is kind of waiting in this book for the author to tip her hand and kind of come out on one side or another about it. It's, I think it's a natural reaction. And I asked her about that too. And you know, in her her perspective you know yeah people come to the book like that but they're almost invariably going to go away disappointed these are the characters in the book are you know just as you maybe you're starting to think that ah oh, this author really doesn't like fracking too much you know the guy who's the environmental activist turns out to be kind of a kind of a jerk you know maybe because they're 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 human characters they're flawed um you know there's there's a couple characters who are more sympathetic than others maybe um you know but but most of them have their flaws and have their good points too uh, and if you're looking at it through the lens of the characters, you're not really going to find any heroes here, I don't think, or, or really villains. I'll say that guardedly. There's probably one guy who's sort of a, <laughs> who's sort of a not very sympathetic character in a lot of ways. Um, but uh, so I think it makes you think about you know other dimensions of the story. It makes you think about the human dimension of this a little bit more than just in terms of victimizers and victims. I think it does that for sure. I think some of the parts of the book are really well re- researched, like what it's like to work on a drilling rig. There's a really good stuff about that. I think if you haven't thought about that issue, you know, she kind of brings you into that world a little bit and just into the world of, you know, the rural land, the rural landscape where this kind of stuff is mostly happening, like what's life out there for like for people that are living in these small depressed towns, these farming areas where uh there's not a lot of other opportunities.
2: But overall, as an arts critic, this book has your, you would recommend it.
3: Oh, definitely so. Yeah, I think it's a really its a really well-written book and uh, really entertaining, engaging.
2: And, uh, Bill, this is unrelated to the subject, but I have to bring it up. Uh, next week will be your 1,000th issue at City Paper. So how does that feel?
3: It makes me feel old. <laughs> um, no, it's interesting. I just, I started wondering about that, funny enough, earlier this year. I've been, it's like, I've been here about 19 years, and I did the math. And, yeah, the issue that comes out... May 25th will be my 1,000th issue at City Paper. So there's and actually a couple people who've been here longer than I have, uh, uh, Kevin Shepard, who works in the production department, uh, Jeremy Witherell, one of our sales guys, and Jim Leverence, who's our circulation director, all are original founding employees of City Paper. They were here when the paper started in 1991. I'm the longest-serving editorial person uh, by by maybe a year or so. But, yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about how it's all changed over the years. I think the papers, you know, it, it, during the 90s, I think it really got a lot better. Um, I think, you know, we continue to do good stuff, but it's under a lot of new challenges from, you know, other media and just the the way the economy's changed over the years and, you know, going back and looking at the, the various issues and how it's grown and shrunk and changed and all those things. It just... It makes you reflect, Ashley. It makes you think.
2: (laughs) As a young journalist, I feel uh, I I can't even imagine not uh, having the Internet right at my desk (laughs) where I can look up anything. What was it like reporting back in the day?
3: Well, 97, I mean, you just had to make a lot more phone calls. You know, you had to call people. Um, People didn't – some people had email, but not many. You know, it's kind of hard to imagine now. Nobody had cell phones at all. There was not Twitter. The Internet existed, but – at City Paper's old offices there was one computer that you could get on the internet. It was a modem dial up connection. So if you wanted to look up something, you know, you might be gone a couple hours while the while the modem, you know, made its little chirping noises. But yeah, we didn't have it at our desks until maybe a year or two later. And so yeah, things were it was more time consuming, you know, just to track people down and to find them. Uh there was, you know, a lot more legwork like that to be done. Um you know, and you couldn't just look up, you know, you know, you needed an almanac or something to look up facts <laughs> maybe that that you would just Google um automatically. Uh and there was, you know, some things about that or maybe maybe not necessarily improvements. I think it made it makes everything move a lot faster. Yeah. You know, you do lose some of the human contact. Um, you don't talk to people on the phone as much, you're more likely to email them and that changes things. I don't know if it's necessarily good or bad, but it changes the relationship with sources.
2: So it's important for me, I feel, to understand how this was, and it's. I think it's something I need to think about and and um, think about how I'm doing my work now, and how it could have been done before. I think. And thinking about the human contact with my sources, it's a good reminder.
3: Yeah, it is certainly different. You know, when I started my college paper, when I started in '83 was just changing over from manual typewriters like they had just gotten word processors like you know months earlier <laughs> Word that's what they called them in those days mm-hmm. word processors so there was no yeah this was like way before the internet or anything this is just like we typed into a machine with a screen on it which was a new totally new thing in those days <laughs> we still had manual typewriters in the office which people used quite frequently um you know so yeah the the technology is always changing but you know, you do need to keep those human relationships. I think that's what's most important. Yeah.
2: We were kind of late to getting a computer at my house when I was young. So I remember using my mom's typewriter to write a book report on the ci- a Civil War book I had to read. It was a, you know, child child book uh, in the fourth fourth grade I think it was. Um and then then I went to the library after that to type things and print them up. I think I had enough of the, the typewriter at age ten. <laughs>
3: it would be hard, yeah, because <laughs> manual was it a manual or was it an electric? Because
2: I think it was an, an electric. Yeah, because yeah. they're a
3: little easier. They're yeah. A little easier on your fingers the keys yeah. are, but if it was in the Civil War, you probably should have been using a quill pen. though, frankly, <laughs>
2: No, it was a book report about the Civil War. <laughs> but all right, Bill. Well, thanks so much for talking to us about Jennifer Haig's book, Heat and Light. And you can see Bill's Q&A with Jennifer Haig on the Pittsburgh City Paper website, pghcitypaper.com.
3: Just wanted to add, Jennifer Haig is actually going to be in town. Oh, okay. uh, On on Monday the 23rd, she's going to be at the Penguin Bookshop in Sewickley, Uh, I don't have the time in front of me, but if you go to their website, um, you can find that. I think it's around 6.30 for a reading and a signing. So she, she does get back to the area once in a while, and Monday's one of those times.
0: Thanks for listening, everybody. Until next week.